So, uh, Hosea chapter 10, we are uh, nearing at least enough um, the end of our series in the book of Hosea. And in some ways, um, parts of it begin to uh, sound similar, uh, long sections of, of rebuke, of warning, uh, and uh, today uh, is a similar chapter, Hosea chapter 10. Would you give your attention to the reading of God's Word? Um, you'll notice uh, from time to time, we, we, it, it usually boils down to how long is the passage we're going to read. Um, we've, we go through phases of standing when we read God's Word, and other times when it just seems long enough that it makes sense to remain seated. So, uh, for now... Uh, Hosea chapter 10, beginning in verse 1. Uh, Israel is a luxuriant vine that yields its fruit. The more his fruit is increased, the more altars he built. As his country improved, he improved his pillars. Their heart is false. Now they must bear their guilt. The Lord will break down their altars and destroy their pillars For now they will say, we have no king, for we do not fear the Lord. And a king, what can he do for us? They utter mere words. With empty oaths they make covenants. So judgment springs up like poisonous weeds in the furrows of the field. The inhabitants of Samaria tremble for the calf of Beth-Avon. Its people mourn for it, and so do its idolatrous priests. Those who rejoice over it and over its glory, for it has departed from them. The thing itself shall be carried to Assyria as tribute to the great king. Ephraim shall be put to shame, and Israel shall be ashamed of his idol. Samaria's king shall perish like a twig on the face of the waters. The high places of Avon, the sin of Israel, shall be destroyed." Thorn and thistle shall grow up on their altars, and they shall say to the mountains, cover us, and to the hills, fall on us. From the days of Gibeah, you have sinned, O Israel. For there they have continued. Shall not the war against the unjust overtake them in Gibeah? When I please, I will discipline them, and the nations shall be gathered against them when they are bound up for their double iniquity. Ephraim was a trained calf that loved to thresh, and I spared her fair neck. But I will put Ephraim to the yoke. Judah must plow. Jacob must harrow for himself. Sow for yourselves righteousness. Reap steadfast love. Break up your fallow ground, for it is the time to seek the Lord that he may come and rain righteousness upon you. You have plowed iniquity, you have reaped injustice, you have eaten the fruit of lies because you have trusted in your own way and in the multitude of your warriors. Therefore, the tumult of war shall arise among your people and all your fortresses shall be destroyed. Shalman destroyed Beth Arbel on the day of battle. Mothers were dashed in pieces with their children. Thus it shall be done to you, O Bethel, because of your great evil. At dawn, the king of Israel shall be utterly cut off. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Would you pray with me? 
Uh, we pray, O Holy Spirit, uh, you have inspired these words. You have preserved them. And now it is your, your function within the Godhead, within the Trinity, uh, to be at work in and by them now. Would you use them to, well, to till the soil of our hard hearts? Uh, to unstop ears, to give us minds to understand and embrace, and hearts to love and delight and respond in faith to Christ. For it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Uh, I assume that for most of you, the name Mary McGregor means nothing. Uh, there may be one or two of you out there who is like, wait, that triggers a memory. I know exactly who that is. I would be impressed because here's the thing. It's her song. It sounds like a Scottish martyr name, right? Mary McGregor. You just think there's going to be a story of a Scottish martyr. In reading Hosea 10, a song went, you know, I think in music, right? This is not news to any of you in this room. I think in songs. And so as I'm reading Hosea 10, her song is running through my head, except I had no idea it was her song. I just know the song. She's not exactly a one-hit wonder, but she's kind of close to a one-hit wonder. The song was written, her one hit, was written by Peter Yarrow, Yarrow of Peter, Paul, and Mary. Was recorded in Muscle Shoals at uh, the Sound, Muscle Shoals Sound Studio. Uh, and yet, I had no idea who this lady is. But it's her title track from her 1976 album, Torn Between Two Lovers. And at that, I just lost half the room because now you're singing the song in your head, right? The chorus is going through your mind. There actually is one person in this room who knew her name. Although technically not in this room, she's back there. Now. Um, the chorus goes, torn between two lovers, feeling like a fool, loving both of you is breaking all the rules. And I, I sort of wonder a little bit if, if that isn't part of the problem. That, that really when it boils down to it, the idea of loving two people at the same time really is only a problem, you know, like a legal problem. It's only a law problem. It's only a rule problem. She seems to sort of make this big deal about the fact that, I mean, loving both of you at the same time is, well, it's, it's breaking all the rules. And if there weren't rules, it wouldn't be a big deal, she seems to sort of suggest. In fact, her, the second verse of the song reflects the idea, that idea. There's been another man that I've needed and I've loved, but that doesn't mean I love you less. And he knows he can't possess me and he knows he never will. There's just this empty place inside of me that only he can fill. You hear her torn between two lovers, feeling like a fool. Well, the reality is that's Hosea's problem in Hosea. I mean, that's Israel's problem in Hosea 10. And truth is, far too often, that's our problem. That we find ourselves torn between, okay, maybe not two lovers, but between two gods. Torn between two would-be lovers, would-be gods, People, ideas, concepts, things we would like to give our heart to. If only it wasn't just simply breaking the rules. 
First, I want you to see in Hosea 10, the need for repentance. Notice the picture in verse two, Israel's heart is false. Now, that's not false as opposed to true, although it sort of is. You can sort of see that connection. It's false as opposed to committed. It's divided. Israel's heart, well, literally torn between two lovers. That's the essence of adultery. That's the, the essence of, of prostitution. And those, that image of spiritual adultery that has traced its way through the book of Hosea from beginning to end. And his, his life, his ministry, the things he's written, all reflect that, that problem of adultery, the sin of Israel giving herself to Baal when she should be giving herself wholeheartedly to Yahweh. But notice how it plays out this this sin of idolatry, this being torn between two lovers sort of plays out in the life of Israel. In verse one, for example, she's she's yielding fruit, she's bearing fruit, she's producing fruit. But that idea of yielding its fruit is really more like yielding fruit for itself. And so what fruit she produces, she then turns around and uses for her own honor, her own glory, her own pleasure. And the reality is God is the one who makes crops grow. Right? God's the one that causes the rain to fall on the just and the unjust. God is the one that causes the the crop to grow and to actually produce fruit. I suppose at some level, we have God to blame for the fact that our garden cannot, for anything, produce squash and zucchini. Great plant. It should be there. But the fruit is just absent. And so this this picture then is that as Israel bears fruit like this luxuriant vine that's spreading and growing and, and producing fruit, she should then give the praise and glory to God, to Yahweh, to the one true God of heaven and earth for that fruit. And instead, she turns around and uses it for herself. In fact, notice the, the, the condemnation of verse 1. The more Israel's fruit increased, the more altars he built. As the country improved, the more pillars they built. There's supposed to be one altar. It's actually in Jerusalem, which is not in Israel. It's not in the northern kingdom, which is part of the problem. There's supposed to be one altar, one place for sacrificing uh, animals for the sins of the people And these are altars built not to Yahweh, but to Baal. But to the pagan gods of the nations around them. So there's there's this sense in which Israel is guilty of this being torn between two lovers. And in a lot of ways, trying to sort of blend them together. Kind of trying to to embrace the, the religious ideas of the culture around them, the world around them, the nations around them, and bring that into her own life. Her heart is divided, which is inherently idolatry. Or look at verses 5 through 8. 
Israel worshipped idols on and, and, and on the high places where they built these altars and, and pillars to, to Baal. It's only, verse 5, it's only when that golden calf gets taken away that they begin to mourn. It's only going to be the loss of that golden calf about which they will weep. Really, in many ways, Israel had decided that heaven had nothing for them. Heaven has absolutely nothing to offer. In fact, verse 3, um, uh, we do not fear the Lord. Why not? Well, because what can he do? And what does he have? He has nothing that he can give me, nothing that I would delight in, nothing that I need, and he can't really do anything about it at all. They don't fear Yahweh. They're worshiping these, these false idols, giving themselves to this golden calf. Which, by the way, has been set up in Bethel precisely because the first king of the northern kingdom, Jeroboam I, didn't want his people traveling to Judah, the southern kingdom, to Jerusalem to worship God. And so Israel has embraced the gods of the nations around them. You ever find yourself torn between two lovers? You ever find yourself tempted by the things of this world? You ever find yourself thinking, I really want to give myself to this other God. Okay, I've been in most of your houses. I haven't seen a golden calf yet. But that doesn't mean we don't have them. That doesn't mean we don't have something, a, a person, an idea, a possession, perhaps the house itself. Something to which, about which, if that were taken from me, that's the thing I would mourn over. That's the thing that the loss of X would cause me to weep and mourn. We find ourselves with divided hearts, divided passions, and we excuse them for the most part. We'd excuse them as, as part of being human and part of just natural life. But if you recall, Jesus himself said, no one can serve two masters. The danger for us is there. It, it may not be a golden calf. It may not be the, the same sort of idol. It may not be as, as outwardly obvious to people around you as Israel's idolatry, but it's still there. And so this accusation in Hosea 10 reminds us that far too often we also are trying to love two lovers. Which then means we really aren't loving either one of them with our whole heart. And there's the problem. See, we sort of think, well, if, as long as God is first and he's got, you know, 75% of my heart, but there's this other thing that I really, really like. There's this other person that I really, really need. There's this other idea that I really, really just have to have. But that's okay because it's only 25% of my heart and God has most of it. 
whether it's the the comforts and pleasures of this world, the praise of others, the um, the beauty of obedient children, of a wonderful house, of fill in the blank. We have our idols. And so this passage warns of a divided heart, of the danger of idolatry. The catch is that idolatry isn't Israel's only problem because we find in verses 9 and 10 a reference that is the third time we've read about Gibeah in the book of Hosea. In fact, it's actually the third time in like the last five or six chapters. This is an event, and and this was your Sunday afternoon reading last week. I trust all of you did it. I trust all of you went back and reread the account of Judges 19 and 20. Because you can't possibly retell the story here in the middle of a sermon on Hosea 10. The catch is there's, there's, there's murder, there's lust, there's sexual sin, there's war, instigated war, so that even Israel launched into a civil war 11 v. 1. And Benjamin was almost completely annihilated. 600 men left. And then that meant, of course, they had to create more sin because they figured out pretty quickly that Benjamin was going to die off without some women for them to marry so they can have children, so they can keep the tribe alive. It's this tangled mess of immorality. If you didn't read it last Sunday, here's your second chance. This Sunday afternoon, Judges 19 and 20 can become your sort of Sunday afternoon reading assignment. The the point is that Israel, verse 10, is double, double guilty. There's double iniquity. They're idolatrous. And they're immoral. And what's interesting is... The sin of Gibeah was ages ago. And it still is the picture of their immorality even now. Are you torn between two lovers? Torn between two gods? Are you, are you living by the morality standards of God's word or by the world around us? That's the danger. That's the need for repentance. The beauty is that in this passage, there's also a call to repentance in verse 12. I don't know if you've, um, if you remember this, I don't know if you've paid much attention to this. I think I've mentioned it a time or two, but God is way more patient than you or I ever would be. I mean, Just go read from 1 Samuel to the end of 2 Kings and and count the number of places you would have said, that's it, you're done. You're annihilated, you're gone, I'm wiping you out. This is perpetual, persistent, constant, nonstop disobedience from day to day and I'm tired of it. There's... Ample opportunity for God to destroy 
this northern kingdom. I mean, it's been, like I said, it's been centuries since the sin of Gibeah in Judges 19. I mean, that was before Israel had kings. That was settling the land. That was, then you've got to go through Saul and David and Solomon. Then you've got to go through the divided kingdom to get here. We would, we destroy people for far less, right? I mean, isn't that what anger is? Isn't that what hatred is? Isn't that what gossip is? I'm going to destroy that person for the little bit of inconvenience they caused me. For the little bit of wrong they did to me, I'm going to, well, I'm going to tell everybody about it. I'm going to destroy them. That's what gossip is. That's what lashing out in anger is. It's, it's really a, the initial act of murder. And we feel justified in it. Because they did a little thing that caused me a little trouble and they kind of sinned against me a little bit and it was really kind of a big deal. Hosea paints the picture, the Old Testament paints a picture, not of an oppressive, destructive, I'm going to get you vindictive God. He's a patient, long-suffering, enduring one. In verse 12, he actually calls the people to repentance. He calls them back to himself. And he even uses language that that we've become so familiar with. This idea of of breaking up fallow ground. The people need a tiller. They need to run their mantis tiller in the garden of their heart and spend those times and stir up the dirt. Right? That's the image that, that Jesus uses in the parable of the soils. Except, of course, it just so happens that the Holy Spirit is the tiller. The Holy Spirit is the one who does the work of digging up the soil and turning over the soil so that it can receive God's word. But that's the picture. It's a a call, verse 12, to repent, to turn from their sin and to turn back to him. And I'm sorry, but if I'm in charge, that chance has been gone for ages. You know, how many times have you thought to yourself, I'm, I'm pretty sure God's not going to welcome me back this time. Like, I'm pretty sure that if I were to fall on my knees and, and pray to him right now, I'm pretty sure that the look on his face says, are you serious? You're back with this same sin again? How many times is that today? Much less the 20, 40, 80 years of your life. Or perhaps you think, I'm, I'm, okay. He welcomed me back 70 times seven. Okay, I get that. But this one, this one's kind of a big deal. This one seems like it's a little too far. This seems like I maybe have, I'm presuming too much on God's grace. I'm pretty sure that this one is bad enough. He wouldn't welcome me back. This is Israel. Immoral, 
idolatrous, all kinds of, of, of sexual aberration going on in Baal worship. And God is saying, come back today. Today's the day for you to come back to me. I mean, you talk about sort of one more time or one too many or one that's just a little too far across the line. In verse 12, God actually, he actually shakes out the welcome mat and lays it out in front of the throne room of heaven and says, come, the door's open, walk in. This is where you should be. It's time to seek the Lord, he says. See, here's the thing. The golden calf that Jeroboam the first built in Bethel, you know it's not their first. It's not that golden calf. This is a second gold. This is another gold. There's already been. This one was built hundreds of years after leaving Egypt. There was one that was built months. I mean, they waited months. Remember when Aaron just threw gold in the fire and out came a calf? Shocking, Moses. I don't know how it happened. It's amazing. See this golden calf. So we call it God and we worship it. This has been a, a pattern and a pattern for, for ages. And yet, despite that repetition, God calls his people back to himself. He invites repentance. He invites them to come into the very throne room of heaven. In fact, today, do it today, he says. In verse 12. There are people, and, and this we've said a time or two, especially in this series in Hosea. Um, there are people that we think are too far gone. There are people that in our minds we think, of all the people I know that Mike could maybe possibly get converted, that guy ain't on the list. There's no such thing as too far gone. Like there's no f such thing from our perspective. There's no such thing, humanly speaking, as too far gone because Israel should have been it. Israel should be at the head of the class in terms of too far gone. And did you notice our affirmation of faith just a few minutes ago? We used catechism questions and answers uh, don't be afraid of the word catechism. It literally just means learning stuff by question and answer. I'm pretty sure that's the technical definition of catechism. But did you notice the, the really demanding list? If you're going to escape the wrath and curse of God that you deserve because of your sin, did you see the list of all the things you have to do? Repent, believe. That's the invitation. That's the, the invitation to repent and to turn from your sin, to hate and forsake your, your, your sin and to turn in faith to Christ and then to pursue diligently the, the ordinary means of grace, word, sacraments, and prayer. To be encouraged, to be built up, to be strengthened. Perhaps you're here this morning and you've never trusted in Christ. 
Perhaps you're here this morning and you're thinking, you know what? The reality is I don't deserve to be called to repentance because I have gone too far. I have done too much. I have gone beyond that limit. And yet, I don't des- so I don't deserve that invitation. Verse 12 is an invitation to you. Pray that the Holy Spirit would soften your heart so that you could receive His Word. His, his work of regeneration in your life. But it's equally true of believers, right? It's, it's not the Spirit's work of regeneration, but it's, it's the Spirit's work of sanctification in our life because the reality is the Christian life is perpetual repentance. Perpetually recognizing, I keep trying to give myself to this false God. And the God of heaven and earth welcomes me home welcomes me back. Today's the day to repent of your guilt and of your sin and look in faith to Christ. And notice what happens, verse 12. What do you reap when you sow repentance? Do you remember the end of Jonah? The the end of the book of Jonah fascinates me, right? Jonah goes to Nineveh. He proclaims judgment. God's going to get you. There's sin and guilt. And then he goes up on a hill and he pops popcorn. And he sits down on the hill and he watches. And he waits. He's looking for fire and brimstone to rain down on Nineveh and destroy them. And when it didn't happen, he got angry. Why didn't it happen? Because God rained righteousness down instead. They actually repented of their sin and turned to God. The need for repentance, the call to repentance. And let me just briefly point out to you the danger of unrepentance. Because here's the thing. Verse 12 is an invitation and a warning. It's an invitation It is time, and the implication there is today is the day of repentance, right? It is time to seek the Lord. Today is the day of repentance. That's an invitation, but it's also a warning. Because it's a a warning that you can't presume upon tomorrow. See, the reality is, by the time we get to the end of the book of Hosea, His voice is still lingering in the air almost when Assyria comes and conquers Israel. I mean, he barely takes a breath after his last sentence and Assyria is there destroying uh, Israel. There was no tomorrow. And so in verses 13 to 15, we get this, this warning. What if there is no repentance? See, Mary McGregor knew the danger. She was keenly aware in her song that the lover number one to whom she was singing may very well walk away. She was aware that the danger is sooner or later he is going to leave. And so she actually begs him to stay She makes up some sappy stuff, but she knows the danger of his departure. And that's the essence of verses 13 to 15. Hosea's voice still hanging in the air. And if it's if it's your army, you trust in. 
If it's that multitude of warriors, fine. War you shall have. They will not win. If it's your golden calf that you trust in, verse 15, Bethel. If it's that golden calf, if it's that, that, that idol that you worship, if that's what you trust in, fine. Let him deliver you from Assyria. He fails. All the things that Israel had confidence in, all the things, well, all the things that divided his heart, her heart would be destroyed and removed. Everything that she wanted to give her heart to would fail and lose when God invaded, when God's minion of Assyria would come and defeat Israel. Because the reality is, God's not going to let his name be mistreated. God's not going to share his glory with anyone else. God's not going to share your heart with anyone else or anything else. There's hope here. There's a, a warning of, 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 um, of impending doom. There's, there's warning of judgment. The danger is left unrepentant. There is judgment coming and it is coming soon. And we don't know when it is. The, the invitation, of course, is you have today. You have right now. Repent and believe the gospel. Turn in faith to Christ. Today is the day to seek the Lord. See, the reality is there's only one way to escape the coming judgment. And it's not in the things of this world. It's not in armies. It's not in golden calves. It's not in those things that look so shiny and attractive and the things that we're just convinced are going to redeem us when it's all said and done. The only escape for our judgment for sin is Jesus Christ. Who, by the way, he's not torn between two lovers. He has one. He's wholeheartedly committed to his bride, the Christ. His, the church. He seeks her protection, her growth, her maturity, her welfare. He's fully committed to her deliverance and her protection in the day of judgment. But he's also committed to her holiness, which means that we as Christians, that our lives are to be marked by repentance. Hating and forsaking our sin and turning in faith to Christ. Turning from our sin and running back to Jesus. Where his response isn't, again, one more? No, his response is welcome. Welcome back into fellowship with me and with my people. That's why he gives us the means of grace. That's why he gives us his word and sacraments and prayer to root out sin in our lives and to woo us back to himself. In fact, I'm pretty sure I've said it was either last week or the week before that the exposure of our sin is actually a grace to us. Because once it's exposed, we can turn from it and hate and forsake it. And we can do so with the help of others around us. If you've never experienced that love of Christ, today is the day of salvation. 
repent and believe and trust in him and be welcomed into fellowship with Christ and with his people. If you have uh, received that love, then you too are urged to repent and seek the Lord. Believe in his grace and mercy for you and be restored in fellowship with him and his people. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, we uh, thank you that there is a promise of grace. There is a promise of deliverance. And it's rooted in a love that excels all other loves. That is wholeheartedly devoted to the redemption of Christ's bride. That is wholeheartedly devoted to our holiness, our sanctification. And we pray that you would be at work. That you would make us people who hate our sin, run to the cross for forgiveness run to Christ for fellowship, run to one another, and rather than, than kick or goad or point fingers, we would instead lift up and walk together to the cross. May we be people who are marked by repentance and faith daily in our walk with you. To the honor and glory of Christ, we ask it. Amen.